0: Well, good morning, guys. Hope you had a good Thanksgiving, and thanks for joining us. I'm really kind of a end of this holiday weekend. As I begin, I want to share a story of a, a plant, a manufacturing plant. It was moving into a, a new town. It was going to create a new... Uh, uh, a new warehouse, and so this town was hit with some economic hard times. Everyone was really excited. Thousands of people applied to work at this plant. They were known for good wages, uh, good paid time off, good benefits, and so thousands of people are applying. You know, the interview process is pretty intense, and uh, the guy who owned this plant, he was a really big history buff, and so to throw off some of the applicants, he wanted to throw some history questions in there, and so the day the, the uh, interviews are, this begin, all these people are interviewing. The first guy walks into the interview room, sits down, and they ask him a few questions. Uh, to try to throw him off to see if this is the type of guy that this, this, this plant wanted to hire. And so the first question was this, um, when did the United States gain its independence? So this man here who's was applying was kind of thrown off. He's like, what does this have to do with anything? So he's racking his brain, and then he spits out this answer. He says, well, uh, many things uh, happened, and a lot of events took place. And then finally, the United States declared its independence in 1776. And then he's like, oh, that's a pretty good question. So they asked him the second one, um, who is the father of the nation? The guy's like, what is happening here? And so he, he says, well, I don't, you know, he says, I, George, he couldn't remember his name. And so he said, um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a fair thing. It's not a fair thing to only name one person. Um, uh, the, you know, a lot of people were involved and many other people made this happen. And so uh, I'll say several people were involved. Uh, it wouldn't be fair to just name one man. Interviewers were really impressed. Then they asked him another question. They said, third question, I said, is, is corruption a major problem today in the United States? Uh, and to which the guy replied by saying, well, the matter is under study by the president. Uh, he's commissioned a delegation to study this. And when the results are released, I'll be able to give you a more certain answer. And so after the interview, he leaves feeling pretty good. And the next guy sitting on the couch is like, hey, what did they ask you? And he said, well, they told me when I left, I wasn't allowed to tell anyone else the questions. And he said, okay, well, then can you just tell me the answers? He's like, well, like, they didn't say that. So he gives him the answers. He said, the first answer is, you know, well, lots of things took place, 1776. The second answer is, you know, who am I to, to call one person father when there were many people involved? And the third answer is, a matter is being studied by a presidential committee. So this guy, he's feeling pretty good, he walks in, they sit him down, they say, hey, there were some problems with your applications, we have a couple of questions we want to ask you before we get in. Uh, first is this, what is your date of birth? To which the man says, well, lots of events took place, but it ended up happening in 1776. These guys are really confused here, and they're like, what is he talking about? It's a small town. Maybe we can find his origin. So they say, well, well, who is your father's name? And he said, well, who am I to call one person father? A lot of people are involved in this and that, and I didn't, you know. And so they're staring at him, and they're like, are you crazy? To which he says, well, the matter is being studied by a presidential committee, and when the results are in, I will get back to you. Now, <laughs> I share that story because today we are concluding our series called Misquoted, and we're talking about how important context is. And how it's really easy when you read, maybe in our uh, answers, or in our case, when you read Bible verses kind of on their own, without their context... It, maybe it might lead you to believe it's saying something that it's actually not. And so we've looked at a couple of verses. Today we're going to conclude by looking at a verse in 2 Chronicles. Before we read that verse, I want us to put our history hats on really quickly. Uh, and I want to just give you some background information behind 2 Chronicles so that we can actually understand the context from which this well-known verse, or this well-used verse, I should say, was written. So if you're not sure with how these things work, here's or how Scripture was compiled and all this sort of things. Here's to try to get us all on the same page. Um, First and Chronicles, there are two separate books in our in our Old Testament. Now, many scholars believe they are originally one scroll or one book, but because it's so long, if you put First and Second Chronicles together, they were eventually compiled into two separate scrolls. But they're sharing uh, one story. Now, in your modern Bibles, if you read chronologically, kind of earlier on in the Old Testament, you'll read First and Second Samuel. 1 and 2 Kings, and then 1 and 2 Chronicles. And so if you were to do that, when you get to 1 and 2 Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles is really a recap of a lot of the same events that happen in 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and Second Things. Now, they kind of reshape it to emphasize different things, but when you're reading, it's like, I just read this information, like, why is this here again? And so it is worth noting that in the tradu- traditional Jewish ordering of the Hebrew Bible, or what we would call the Old Testament, Chronicles is actually the last book in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, chron- or not chronologically, but how it's placed. It's actually placed as the last book in the Hebrew Bible because it is meant to be a summary of all that it takes place in the Hebrew scriptures. It literally begins with the word Adam because it's a chronolo- uh, chronology beginning with Adam, the first couple chapters of First, and, uh, first Chronicles is. And then it ends, uh, the last paragraph in 2 Chronicles is about Israel's return from exile. They have been exiled now that they are back in their land and they are looking forward to the day when this one day this Messiah would come and make all All things right." Now, the final compiler of this book is unknown, but from the details within it, we can say it was probably complete, completed around 400 B.C., so around 400 years before Jesus is on the scene. It's the last book, again, in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, for context, say Israel was in the Promised Land, and they were exiled in 538 B.C., or I'm sorry, in 586 B.C., and they started returning to the, to, to the original land around 538 B.C., and so they've been back in, the, in their, kind of their homeland for about 150-ish years by the time this book was written, they're still under rule of various other uh, n- uh, nations and kingdoms, but they're at least a lot of them are at least back in Jerusalem and back in their homeland. Now, after the exiles began to return to Israel and to Jerusalem, after they were essentially kicked out, the temple in Jerusalem was, was rebuilt. So it was originally built by King Solomon and completed all the way back in 957 BC, was the original temple in Jerusalem that was built. Then it was destroyed in 586 BC, about 400 years later, Um, And then in 538 BC, about 50 years after that, when the Israelites were allowed to return to Jerusalem, a second temple was beginning to be built. Now, unfortunately, there is still a lot of unfaithfulness by the time the chronicler comes around to compile what he writes in these books. Um, The original hope when Israel returned to Jerusalem was that the city would be rebuilt, that the temple would be rebuilt, that God would live among his people, and that a messianic king would come and rule with peace and love and that all nations would fall under his rule but none of that has happening none of that is happening when the first and second chronicles is written and so The author, or rather the compiler of Chronicles, is reshaping some of the fundamental or foundational stories of Israel's past, and he talks a lot about King David and King Solomon to provide a hope for the future, to try to encourage Israel to still remain faithful. And so really, there are two clear themes in the book of Chronicles. One is the hope of a coming Messiah, to be faithful, to still long for what they're waiting for, and two, for the hope of a new future or a new temple where God will actually rule and reign and where peace will be on the earth. And so that's a lot of information, but that's really what Chronicles is about, which leads us to our verse today. You can put it on the screen. Here's second Chronicles chapter seven, verse 14. It says this, it says in my people, or in some translations, it says, and when my people who bear my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven Forgive their sin and heal their land. So that's the context for this verse. Now, what often happens, you hear this verse a lot, typically in political seasons, particularly around presidential elections, at least in the United States. And here's kind of the thought, right? When you read this verse all on its own, it kind of seems to be saying that if God's people in a given country, of course, we live in America, so for us, it would be America, humble themselves and pray, then our country will turn around. Maybe we'll have less natural disasters, less violence, less immorality. And most importantly, we will prosper and have all of our needs met. So, if a group of Christians in any given nation humble themselves and pray, God will redeem and heal the nation or the country that they are in. Now, the question is: If in is in context, is this what the Second Chronicles 7:14 actually saying? Now, one of the things we've said throughout this series is this: that all Scripture was written in a specific context, speaking to specific people with specific needs. Specific context, specific people, specific needs. Um, and, and for us, we are not in that context. We do not have those needs, and our culture is much, much different. And so what we've said in this series is that the Bible is not something so much that you should go to as like a textbook to try to find answers. Like you kind of, each Bible verse kind of stands as its own, like its own bullet point, and you just kind of read it and apply it to your life. But rather, it is wisdom literature or it is meditation literature that we try to understand as best we can the context that it was written, how the original audience would have understood it, and then apply the wisdom to our cultural moment today, which is vastly different than the cultural moment that they are in. Like, what is the wisdom that God is showing us? What is the character of God revealed here? What can we learn that even though our culture and our context is different, we can still apply wisdom to it? Right and so specifically the context of 2 Chronicles 7 is this that it was talking about how the first temple was completed during the reign of King Solomon that there were lots of sacrifices offered and God's presence filled the temple so this is what 1 Chronicles or 2 Chronicles chapter 6 and 7 is about this is a retelling of how the original temple was built and that there was essentially like a really great ceremony or dedication to the temple and then there was a 7-day feast that was held and that the people were encouraged that's what's going on. And then we're going to pick up the story, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 11. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. If not, uh, there's a black one in front of you, and it'll be on page 380. If you don't own a Bible, you can take one of those home. It is our gift to you. So the context here, again, the chronicler it specifically is retelling the story of the original temple, how it was built, and how people were sacrificing uh, to it, and God's presence filled the temple. And then he says this in verse 11 of chapter 7. So Solomon finished the Lord's temple and the royal palace. Everything that had entered Solomon's heart to do for the Lord's temple and for his own palace succeeded. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple of sacrifice. Right, so again, the temple was a was a place for sacrifice as well as a place for prayer. This is why, in the first century, when the second temple had been rebuilt, when Jesus goes into the temple and he's really upset and he says that, that you have turned that the religious leaders had turned what was supposed to be a house of prayer into a den of thieves. What was going on is it's not that it was a problem that they were selling animals to be sacrificed because if you were journeying to Jerusalem, you wouldn't bring animals with you. The problem is that they had they had overrun the entire temple with sacrifices, and there was only certain places where non-Jews, which are Gentiles, If you were a Gentile, you were only allowed in certain places of the temple. And they were no longer could could pray, pray in those places because these temple courts and these money changers had taken over the entire thing. It was no longer a house of prayer, which is why Jesus was upset because that was the original intention. And then it says this, verse 13. It says, If I shut the sky so that there is no rain, or if I command the grasshopper to consume the land, or if I send pestilence on my people... And then the verse, and if my people who bear my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, again, specifically, uh, the chronicler here is is referencing what he talked about in in chapter six and in Deuteronomy, where God provides or explains that there will be divine punishments of what will happen if God's people disobey, disobey him and turn from him. Right? And it's a reminder that even in these things, that even if Israel fails and sins and goes their own way, if they would humbly repent, if they would just be honest about their condition, God's desire is not to punish, but to redeem, that he will forgive them, that he will heal their land, and that he will reconcile them back to a right relationship with him. Now, in context specifically, the healing that the chronicler is referring to includes deliverance from drought, plagues, and various nature-related problems that cause crops to grow, because for most of human history, and certainly in the Israeli context, agriculture was your means of survival. And so drought, plagues, famine would mean things were not going well for you, and so if you humble yourselves and repent, God is saying, I will make your land fruitful again. And most importantly, too, coupled with that, is that there will be a restoration of people into a right relationship with God. In other words, you see two things happening. You see uh, material, tangible prosperity happening, but you also see spiritual reconciliation happening. That They actually go hand in hand. Or to put another way, one of the things for us to understand with this verse, especially how sometimes it's interpreted, interpreted in our day and age today, is this, that tangible blessing without spiritual reconciliation is not a sign of healing. So, tangible blessing on its own, material blessing, wealth, economy going better in any given context, without spiritual reconciliation, is not a sign of healing in this text. And in context of this verse, this is why it's important, because a material needs are met, which is, it is saying that they will be met. There will be peace in the land, that the prosperity will also increase. But there can be in this assumption in this verse and how it sometimes, I think mistakenly, I don't think people are doing this on purpose, but I think mistakenly uh, understood today is that as long as that healing really involves our prosperity or our economy going up and our wealth going up, our material possessions, you know, are being taken care of, all of that goes up uh, without really understanding the spiritual component is just as important. Or in other words, it would be a mistake to assume that God is maybe healing or blessing a nation just because it has high financial or high material blessing, even if the spiritual condition is low, right? If there is, if the spiritual condition is poor, particularly in 2 Chronicles 7, it's saying that true healing has not occurred. And if we use this verse just to say, oh, we need to pray so that, you know, bad things won't happen to our country. There'll be less hurricanes and that we'll have more in our savings account. And if that were to happen, it doesn't actually mean God has healed it. And that's good for us, but in this verse, both these things are important. Spirit, tangible blessing without spiritual reconciliation is not healing. And to use this verse to say we should just pray so that we can have our economy better is to certainly misappropriate the use of this verse. Now, that being said, it is, the, the opposite is also true. And that is that true faithfulness does impact the needs of others. True faithfulness does impact the needs of others. And even in 2 Chronicles, we see both of these things go hand in hand. So the opposite uh, could also be true or could also not be good, right? If we just think, well, we just need to tell people about Jesus and we need to, it's like, you know, you've seen those, uh, like those 100, for example, those like $100 tracks that people can leave at their table for their waiter as they, after their meal. And like, they don't actually tip the waiter and it's like, here's Jesus. And it's like, that's all they need. It's like, that's, that is also not what this verse is saying, right? In fact, all throughout the scriptures, we see that God really does care about the, the need of people. He really does care about the physical condition of people. And if we swing too much to the other way to say, we just need to tell people about Jesus, and it doesn't matter if they're suffering now because it's temporary, is also not to do what the scripture says. There's plenty of examples of this. One I'll just read real quick in in James chapter 1 verse 27. uh, James writes this in the New Testament. He says, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, "...to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained from the world." In other words, we should seek to improve the condition of others, right? This promise in Chronicles, by the way, does that. That we should pray not just for the spiritual reconciliation, but for the tangible increase to happen as well that we can be provided for. Of course, Jesus does this. He doesn't just forgive people's sins. He feeds people. He befriends people. He heals people. He does all these things that make a big difference in their physical lives. And of course, the New Testament all over the place encourages this. Right, As followers of Jesus, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, are really faithful and honor him the way he has called us to honor him. It's not just, I'm going to read my Bible and pray but I'm also going to treat people with love and respect. If there's a tangible need uh, around me that I can meet, then I'm going to try to be a generous person to help them. That is what 2 Chronicles 7 is also showing, that God cares not just for your spiritual condition and not just for your physical condition, but he cares for both. And it is an encouragement to the nation of Israel that if they remain faithful or if they're unfaithful, but they repent, God will restore their physical needs and their spiritual needs, that he will redeem them and he will draw close to them again. And so if we flip back to Second Chronicles and continue reading, again, here's what uh, God is saying here. That if they've gone their own way and things are not going well, but if they repent, he will heal their land. He will reconcile himself to them. And then he says this, My eyes will now be open, this is verse 15, and my ears attentive to prayer from this place. And I have now chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there at all times. As for you, remember, this is a recap that the chronicler is saying when the first temple was established. As for you, talking about Israel here, if you walk before me as your father David walked, doing everything I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and ordinances, I will establish, establish your royal throne as I promised your father David. You will never fail to have a man ruling in Israel. So again, just historically, it's worth noting here that the last king in the line of David had been deposed of in 586 BC. And So by the time 586 arrived, some of the kings of Israel were really just puppet kings anyway. But by the time there was 586, it was he was completely disposed of, and there was no more Israel king. Now, somewhere again around 200 years later, by the time of this writing, the chronicler still has a messianic hope that someone from the line of David... Will redeem God's people, and that this same man will come to rule God's people with love and peace. Now my purpose here this morning is to focus just on Second Chronicles, but come on. Who do we think we're talking about here? And we'll get back to this in a second, right? This is, again, about 200 years, they're they're now back in the land, they've rebuilt the temple, things are not going well, and there's still this hope that there is going to be some man that is going to come from the line of David to do for us what has not been done up to this point and will rule us with love and peace and will be the king of all people. This is what the chronicler is trying to encourage their people to long for. And then it says this in verse 19, again, a recap, it says, however, if you turn away, And abandon my statutes and my commands that I have set before you. And if you go and serve other gods and bow and worship to them, then I will uproot Israel from the soil that I gave them. And this temple that I have sanctified for my name, I will banish from my presence. I will make it an object of scorn and ridicule among all peoples. As for this temple, which was exalted, everyone who passes by will be appalled and will say, why did the Lord do this to this land and to this temple? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord God of their ancestors who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They clung to other gods and bowed in worship to them and served them. Because of this, he brought ruin on them. Now, again, this is a recap of God's original covenant of Israel when the first temple was built, and then, of course, this is what actually happened. That they were unfaithful, that God removed them from their land because they acted the same way that the people that were in the land before them acted and did some really evil and wicked things. Now, again, all of this was originally spelled out in Deuteronomy when, they were, when, this, when the nation of Israel was given their covenant and their laws that they were to follow if they really wanted to know and honor God. And then, again, it's referenced, again, here in Chronicles, and so that while the temple signified God's desire to God's will to forgive and to restore people whenever they repent, Um, his commands, he also says that he will reject them if they continue to go on their own way and feel like they don't need God. And the decisive factor in all of this is not the behavior of their people, and it is not whether or not they sin, but simply whether or not they repent. That's what's actually going on here. The decisive factor about whether they'll have God's presence and a man ruling over them is not whether they're perfect all the time, but simply if they're just honest when they need God's help. And so again, in context, here's what we see happening, particularly in in 714, but really in in this passage altogether, that this is a promise to ancient Israel that if they repent and return to the Lord, that he will rescue them, that he will redeem them. And what, what, what we then do, if we're not careful, is that we can read 714 on its own without its historical context and not understanding the original audience. And then we can pluck it out and view this verse as a rallying cry for America because that's where we live. But you could do this, you know, if we lived in another country, you could do it for that country uh, as well. Any nation could do this. And then, and then in this interpretation, Christians are the people called by God's name. And if Christians humble themselves, if they pray, if they seek God's face, then God will heal the land or the country or the nation that the Christians find themselves in. And it's, again, it's often understood as a moral, political, and economic healing. Not always, but many times it's kind of, the, the spiritual component's kind of thrown out. And it's like, hey, we Christians, we need to pray. We need to hope for the best. And then God will make our nation prosper again. The question again, however, is that, is this the proper understanding of this verse? And if this passage In its context. Again, like the whole series, I don't think people intentionally are trying to take Bible verses out of context. I think what happens is that we misunderstand the type of literature the scripture is, and again, think each verse is kind of a bullet point that you take out on its own without considering what it was written and who it was written to. And so what second, when Second Chronicles 7.14 um, is applied to Christians in the United States or any other modern nation, it is usually with the understanding, again, that a Christians in that, con, in, that, in that nation, that we represent like a righteous remnant. And if this righteous remnant will pray and seek the Lord on the behalf of the nation, um, that the God will then uh, repent and save the entire nation. That's kind of how it's thought. It's kind of like a promise that if Christians do this, this is what will happen for the entire nation. But here's the thing, and here's what we need to know, that God actually never promised that if a righteous remnant in any nation repents and prays for the nation, that the nation will be saved. That's not a promise here, and that's not a promise in any scripture, that if Christians in any nation just pray and repent, then then he will therefore redeem or save the entire nation. That's not what it's actually saying. Now, that being said, I want to say this. This is not to say we shouldn't want national repentance. This is not to say we shouldn't pray for it. This is not to say we shouldn't pray for revival, pray for... we should. It's not to say we shouldn't, it, but it's just to say that if a large, and I don't say too, that if a large percentage of people in any given nation actually turned to the Lord, desired to follow Jesus, repented of their sins, we were kind to one another, we gave grace to one another, we were generous to one another, uh, I think the nation would, would see a lot of improvement just because that's, that's what happens when, we, when you love each other well. And I, and I do think God may, may bless that. That may actually happen. It's just not what this passage or any Old Testament passage between God and the nation state of Israel is teaching. In other words, these promises, here's where, I know this is a lot of information, maybe this will be helpful. The promises here, and in, in all the promises in the Old Testament when they're specifically specified to Israel, were addressed between God and his covenant people and reflect the covenant blessings and cursings promised in the law of the first five books of the Bible and therefore are not appropriately applied for believers who do not live in this theocratic nation. In other words, as followers of Jesus, you and I don't live under the Old Testament law. It's a different context. Jesus, our Messiah, has come. And so we find ourselves in a completely different context than the nation, the geographical nation state of Israel that was supposed to be the light of the world of whom the Messiah would come from. Now the Messiah has come and we point people to Jesus. And so again, certainly, I, I certainly believe that God would long for the people of the United States or any country. Uh, to humble themselves and to pray and to turn to their faith in Jesus. Absolutely. And although God would certainly forgive our sins, anybody's sins who does that, Uh, This is not a promise here that God will restore their respective nations or will heal their lands. It is not a promise that if Christians in a modern context today pray that he will provide economic and spiritual blessing for the entire nation because we are not the nation of Israel living under the laws and the Old Testament commands of God. Or put another way, uh, 2 Chronicles 7.14 is not a promise for a prosperous nation. It's not a promise. It's not, again, it's not to say this would not happen if you had a large majority of people su- truly repent and truly try to follow Jesus. It's not to say that they, we, want, we will not be blessed or that God will not move in powerful ways. It's not to say that wouldn't happen. It's just to say that this, this verse is not promising that if Christians in a country do that, then the country therefore will experience blessings of X, Y, and Z. It's not a promise, that, a blanket statement, that it actually will happen. It is not a promise for a prosperous nation. And yet, it's also important to know this, that 2 Chronicles 7.14 does remind us of our need to seek the Lord. 2 Chronicles 7.14 reminds us of our need to seek the Lord. Again, one of the things that we do, even though we are in a different context from the original audience, is what is the nature of God revealed? How does God relate to his people? And so although this is not a promise for modern America or any other country, the wisdom it shows us is that God hears people when they turn to him, And that his character, is his desire is to to give forgiveness and grace. The character of God, the wisdom that we can apply from this text is that God desires to redeem anyone and everyone who would turn to him no matter what they have done. If you're familiar with the Old Testament and the story of Israel, they've done some very wicked things. You and I have done some very sinful things. And yet in spite of all of that stuff, God always desires to give grace and mercy to those who are simply honest for his need for him. And this is the wisdom. Here's some of the character of God that is clearly shown in this text. Although it's not a promise for modern America or any nation, it is a reminder of the character of God and what he does to those and to people who turn to him, that he redeems and that he cares. Now, I do want to say one more thing that's really fascinating here because we're talking about Chronicles. Again, I mentioned earlier How the uh, scriptures in our Bibles are are, are placed different than the traditional, in the Old Testament rather, are placed different than the traditional uh, ordering in the Hebrew scriptures. And again, part of the reason for this is because First and Second Chronicles is at the end of the Hebrew Scriptures because it's a summary, essentially. It starts with a long, chapters-long uh, genealogy from Adam to... I mean, it doesn't have everybody, but it's a chapters-long genealogy of all these different people, um, and it begins with that, and then it focuses primarily on the line of Solomon and David, and reminding Israel, the people of Israel of God's promises of the king that's going to come. Now, what's interesting is that the first book of our New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, actually does the same thing. So the Gospel of Matthew was written originally primarily for a Jewish Christian audience who would have been able to pick up on a lot of the themes in Chronicles because they were longing for the, uh, for the revealing or for the promise of First and Second Chronicles to come to pass. And so uh, the, the book of Matthew... Just like the book of Chronicles is all, well, the book of Chronicles isn't about Jesus, but the book of Matthew starts with the book, uh, literally starts this way. Verse 1, it says, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That's how Matthew 1, 1 starts. And you can actually literally translate that, uh, the the book of Genesis. That's how you would literally translate that from Greek to English. It doesn't really make sense in our English Bibles, and so that's why it's translated, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. But literally, it's the book of Genesis, of Jesus. That's, That's how Matthew actually begins. Again, Chronicles starts also with the beginning, does a very, very long genealogy and focuses on David and his kingdom and who are going to come through him. And of course, Chronicles again, starts with Adam and Matthew starts with in the beginning, Genesis. So they have the same beginning. And what you might not know is that the book of Matthew and the book of Chronicles has a very similar ending. Here's the ending of the book of Matthew. You might be familiar with it. This is Jesus's, uh, The Great Commission from Jesus, it says this in Matthew 28. It says this, the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. This is after the resurrection of Jesus, and he's going to ascend back into heaven. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So after Jesus' perfect life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, he's on earth for 40 days giving really final instructions, if you will. He's ascending back into heaven. He's saying, go, teach the people who I am, what I've taught you, how to be redeemed, how to be reconciled to God. And know as you do this, my spirit, the spirit of God will be with you. Now, check out, again, Matthew is written to a Jewish audience who would have picked up on these things. It's very intentional. Check out how 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 22 and 23 is the last two verses of the book of Chronicles. Here's how Chronicles ends. It says, in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and also put this into writing. Verse 23, this is what the King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of the heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem and Judah. Any of his people among you may go up and may the Lord his God be with him. Now what's happening here is the chronicler again is giving a recap of what happened when the Jews were allowed to go back to their land and to begin to rebuild the temple, which is what had happened by the time Chronicles had been written? Now, Pirate, or King uh, the King, King Cyrus wasn't a fear of the Lord; he wasn't any of those things. But at this point in time, somehow, some way, he knew that the God, at least the God of the Jews, had directed him to allow his people to go back to Israel and allow them to build their temple, and told them that if you do this, God's presence will be with you. Now, you notice the great similarity between the great commission from Jesus and Cyrus's proclamation. That there's a declaration of authority, that God has said, you, I told me to do this. There is a charge to go and do what I'm telling you to do. That there's the building of God's house or God's kingdom, in our case, and the, presence, or the promise that God's presence will be with them. In other words, Matthew begins and ends his gospel with the beginning and ending of the whole New Testament. Genesis to Chronicles. This is what Matthew is trying to communicate, and he is tying all of it together, of course, in the person of Christ, who is the beginning and the end, the fulfillment of all things promised by God throughout the Hebrew scriptures and specifically longed for in the book of Chronicles. That this Jesus, this man, this Christ is the new Genesis, that he's the new creation, and even the new Cyrus, only he is greater and his authority actually extends over all of heaven and all of the earth this is who the, the the who that they have longed for the person who can actually bring healing and bring reconciliation is here in the man named Jesus or i think some of the wisdom ironically that we can take from second chronicles 7:14 as believers today is this second chronicles 7:14 is pointing us toward a future It is pointing us to a future hope. Remember, all of Chronicles is about this, a hope where a restored people, where God's people are are redeemed and ruled by this man who loves them and who is king and brings peace and justice and love. Today, as followers of Jesus, this is who we worship, and this is also what we long for, that when Jesus himself returns a second time and judges the living and the dead and recreates the heavens and the earth, we will see in totality perfection, love, peace, mercy, given by this man named Jesus, this God who has become flesh that the chroniclers were longing for. Again, 2 Chronicles 7.14 is not a promise to Americans But it is a reminder of our and everyone's need for God and his love for us, right? That you and I, just like the Chronicle, have a hope and a longing for a future kingdom as well. And the good news of the gospel is that repeatedly, if you're familiar with the stories of the Old Testament, of the Israelites being unfaithful and unfaithful, and God always, repent, or always giving them grace and always giving them mercy, this is what the gospel is. The final God become flesh, showing all of us that in spite of what you and I have done, or what you and I have said, or what has happened to you and I, that God in his grace sent Jesus to do for you and for me what we could not do for ourselves, to offer redemption, to offer hope, and to offer healing. And so we long for the day when we get to meet Jesus face-to-face knowing that he has redeemed us now. The good news of the gospel, it's not about you or who you are or what you've done or what you strive to do. That just like he's encouraging the people in Chronicles or the Israelites in the book of Chronicles, the reminder for us is that if you and I would trust in the Lord, there is healing and there is hope and there is mercy. This is the God who has come us. This is why the Advent season that we're just about to get ready to celebrate is good news, that God, not a cool story of God coming because he's awesome and to do cool miracles and to teach us how to love each other, but he's coming to redeem us, that we follow him and that as we pursue him, we pray that he might use us to bring his presence and his temple wherever he goes. And this is also why the analogy of the temple being present throughout the New Testament or throughout the gospels is, is such a big thing. For example, when Jesus says that the temple is going to be destroyed and he's going to raise it again in three days, what is he talking about? He's talking about his body. This is why the New Testament, the Apostle Paul talks about how believers are temples of the Holy Spirit, that just like the Israelites came back to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, now that Jesus has come, you and I, those of us that are followers of Jesus, are little temples out into the world, that we bring God's presence with us when we trust him, when we love him, and when we repent and are honest about our brokenness. Second Chronicles 714, in the same way as it's encouraging the chronicler or the people in the book of Chronicles, it's also encouraging us, pointing us to a future hope, not in ourselves, but in this man named Jesus who has come to redeem us.